Keeping people with COPD under control. When someone comes to the emergency department with heart failure, predicting mortality. Out of hospital CPR. And what medications make the newer anticoagulants more risky with respect to bleeding? That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. Posted on October 13th, 2017, I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I think we need to reveal to everyone that you're going to be cycling in France, and so we're recording ahead of time. Let's turn right to the Journal of the American Medical Association. Last week, we were talking about anticoagulation with the blood thinner warfarin. This week, we're going to talk about the newer oral anticoagulants and hmm, what can happen with those. And those are called NOACs, N-O-A-C, for non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants for our medical geeks. Because we have a lot of experience with Coumadin, the older anticoagulant, we know a lot of medications that either increase the risk of bleeding or decrease its effectiveness, but really don't have many reports on medications that are oftentimes taken with the NOACs to see if they affect the bleeding risk. So the investigators here looked at over 91,000 patients that were in a database, and they were all taking one or more of the newer anticoagulants. They're oftentimes taking other medications. So they looked to see what other medications they were seeing and identified those individuals that had a higher or lower bleeding risk with NOACs to see what medications may be contributing to those. And what they discovered was that if they were also taking amiodarone, a medication to regulate heart rhythm, fluconazole, an antifungal agent, rifampin, an antibacterial agent, or phenytoin or dilantin, that's a seizure medication, increased the risk of major bleeding. There were some medications that decreased the risk an antibiotic called erythromycin or clarithromycin, a statin-lowering medication called atorvastatin or digoxin. Any of those were associated with a lower risk of bleeding. This is really, really important information because we know so many people are subject to polypharmacy being on many medications at the same time. So knowing these interactions, I think it's just really critical. And one of the major indications for these are people that have atrial fibrillation. Oftentimes, these people are on one or more of the medications that I mentioned. That's why it's critical that individuals know that. How are we going to get this information out there, make sure it's disseminated, make sure people know that this is a risk? All of our listeners should, and many of them are healthcare providers. Since this is the first, to my knowledge, nationwide population core study to look at the major bleeding risk, this information needs to go out to all primary care providers and to specialists, either hematologists or cardiologists that would be prescribing these medications. I think there's that, but also to pharmacists so that they can alert their patients that there might be an increased bleeding risk if they're taking these medications together. And listen, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm sorry I didn't mention them. They play a major role in managing people that are taking multiple medications. Okay. Since we're in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we're talking also about medications. Let's turn to what I said about managing people with COPD. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is usually the result of smoking. And there are different stages of COPD. There's still controversy about the people that have stable COPD. They all benefit from having a long-acting beta agonist, or called a LABA. But does the use of 
other medications in combination help these individuals prevent COPD exacerbations. And the two major other categories are what are called long-acting muscarinic antagonists, or LAMAs, or inhaled steroids. What the investigators did here was they looked at 11 different clinical trials of almost 10,000 patients that combined LABA with either of these other two medications. And what they discovered was combining the long-acting beta agonist with the long-acting muscarinic antagonist was most effective for lowering the risk of having a COPD exacerbation and also for improving the respiratory test, what's called an FEV1. And by the way, there was no difference with regard to serious adverse events. Again, really important information because we have so many more people who are manifesting COPD now, and it would really be great to be able to keep them out of the hospital with an acute exacerbation. And most individuals that have COPD aren't at high risk for multiple exacerbations. They're in this stable group as well. So I agree, this review really provides insight into how to best treat these individuals. From here, let us go to an issue we've talked about before that they've done in lots of other countries for many years with a lot of success. That's increasing bystander CPR so that folks can be transported to the hospital when they suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And they've shown that it's really been very beneficial. Now we have a study that looks at that here domestically in JAMA cardiology. And you're right, most of the studies have been done across the pond that have shown that public health initiatives have improved an outcome with bystander CPR. This study was done in North Carolina. They looked at CPR, not only bystander outpatient, but also in-home CPR as well. Furthermore, this public health initiative also instructed first responders, EMS, about when to appropriately provide shocks to try to resuscitate the individual. Does it really show any benefit? So this observational study, which involved over 8,000 patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, two-thirds were at home and one-third were in a public setting. That mirrors what goes on across the world. What they discovered was that this comprehensive public health initiative increased bystander CPR both at home, it went from 28% to 41%, and also in the public setting from 61% to 70%. There were more individuals likely to be alive with CPR. It went from about 6% to 8% at home, and in the public setting from about 11% to 16%. I find it really interesting. I especially think it's interesting that the in-home rate improved. Because we've talked about that before. It's sort of one thing to get EMS personnel and other folks involved in this effort with someone who has an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But gosh, if it takes place at home, how do you make sure that the residents of the home are aware? That's why the outcomes with out-of-home are better than in-home, because most of the in-home are unwitnessed. Nevertheless, again, what these public health initiatives show is that there's more use of CPR and increased survivorship, even in the in-home setting. So we'll urge everyone along with their flu shot to make sure that they're current on CPR, which is really just so very simple these days. Finally, let's turn to annals of internal medicine. When somebody comes into the hospital with heart failure, how can we predict their 30-day mortality? So, Elizabeth, I'm going to take a step back. We have a lot of studies that talk about predicting mortality if you're in the hospital, but about 90% of these patients don't come into the hospital. They actually present to the emergency department. And in that setting, in the United States, about 16% of those patients get discharged home. In Australia, it's as many as 
35% get discharged home. The implication being is that the persons who are discharging home have a low mortality and those that we're admitting are at increased risk and that's why we want to bring them into the hospital. But we've really not identified what the risk factors are so that we can accurately identify those individuals. So this was an interesting study because they took about 5,000 patients first that presented the emergency department with heart failure and they looked at 88 different variables to see which of them predicted who would be alive 30 days later. And they were able to identify 13. Then they took those and applied those to 3,000 patients. And what they discovered was by looking at these 13 different variables, and by the way, they're all easily obtained. It doesn't require a huge amount of testing. You can usually get that information within 30 to 60 minutes of seeing the patients. It's the mortality in the low-risk patients was less than 2%. In the high-risk patients, it was as much as 45%. That's a huge swing. Now, fortunately, of those that have a low mortality, that comprises about 40% of the patients that come to the emergency department. That means we ought to be able to treat them there and send them home. And the individuals that are high risk are less than 10% of the population. Those are the ones we need to focus on. To take it a step further, these investigators plugged it into a web-based formula. So anybody in any emergency room sitting anywhere in the United States, in fact, anywhere around the world, can plug in the numbers for their particular patient and it will tell them what their mortality was, which will help them decide, do I bring the patient into the hospital and aggressively treat them? Or can we treat them in the emergency department and send them home with close follow-up? Hmm. Now, this is really interesting because this idea of bringing them into the hospital, what about the outcomes relative to that? If somebody who is considered to be high risk in the ED is admitted, then how successful are we at making sure that they're discharged? Well, a lot of that depends upon their underlying condition. I mean, there are some patients that regardless of what you do, their mortality is still going to remain very high. But I'd say anybody who's taking care of a patient in the emergency department and they know their mortality is 45% right up front, they're not going to send them home. They're going to bring them into the hospital to try to stabilize that patient and to put them on more intensive therapy as well. So you feel that that's effective, that when these folks are identified, that it is possible to employ other things that could be of benefit? Absolutely. Oftentimes, the reason why these individuals are doing poorly is because they're not on the proper medications or they stop the proper medications or there's been some intervening health issue. For example, they may have pneumonia or they may have renal failure or some other complication that can be addressed at that time as well. So yes, I do believe that bringing these people into the hospital can improve their outcome. On that note, I'm going to talk about the out-of-hospital CPR study this week on the blog. Safe cycling, Rick. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well.